Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, and then skipping to 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 6, and 15 to 19, which can be found on page 161 in your pew Bibles, or 314 of the large print pew Bibles. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your amazing love, a love that we do not deserve, but a love that we can experience. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that you do not love us because we are lovable, that you love us because you are loving. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. You'd help us to hear your word. You'd help us to understand your word. You'd help us to come to know you better, that we would love you more for who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 28 starts with some blessings for obedience and then moves into some curses for disobedience. Now, we'll get a little taste of both of these, but here's where this comes into play. This is when Moses is with the people of Israel. They are just getting ready to enter into the promised land. The people are. Moses is not. And he goes over all of uh, the law again. This is what God had given to the people when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They go up to Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments uh, and other rules and regulations. He says, this is how you are to live as my people. And so now, before they go in, they go over it all again. And then we hear these If you actually do these things, here's how it's going to go well for you. And if you don't, here's how it's going to go not well for you. So here we have uh, little samples of those. Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 6, and then 15 to 19. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Sounds pretty good. Skip down to verse 15. However... If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. You may have noticed a little parallelism there talks about very similar things. One, on one instance, it goes well, and the other, not so much. And yet, if you actually read the whole of the chapter, you'll notice there's much more attention given to the curses instead of the blessings. And yet, it seems when we do our 
uh, Bible readings or making greeting cards, we sure spend an awful lot more time focusing on the blessings, don't we? Than on the cursing. And it's about four to one in this chapter, by the way. Have about four times as many curses listed as, uh, as blessings given. I'm not sure what that means, but I think it means don't skip this part. All right. We're going to skip that. Moving on. <laughs> Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verses 13 to 20. can be found on page 856 in your pew Bibles or 1638 in the large print. And uh, here we have Jesus with his disciples preparing for the Last Supper with what should be some familiar words. Luke 22, 13 to 20. It says, They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then our sermon text for the day, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now you may not remember, but before Christmas we were actually going through a series on the book of Hebrews, and we left off actually at the end of chapter 7. Now I say you may not remember that, because I myself did not remember that. And so I was preparing for this, uh, this week to preach on uh, the book of Hebrews. I began preparing on Hebrews chapter 9. And it wasn't until yesterday that I realized, wait a second, we never covered chapter 8. <laughs> so if this all seems a little half-formed, there's reason for that. Confession, they say, is good for the soul, right? Okay. But next week, it ought to be doubly prepared and twice as long. <laughs> now, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 8, but here's, here's, where, this, uh, here's where this goes. It says, now, the, the main point of what we are saying is this. And what uh, the writer of the Hebrews has been talking about is how Jesus is better than everything else, right? And so this is sort of a little recap here, how the writer of the Hebrews is talking to people who were most likely Jewish believers in Jesus. They had been raised 
in Judaism. They had been raised understanding all of the, uh, the ways that you relate to God through the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the temple and all those sorts of things. The sacrifice, the offerings that are, that are made, going through the priests. And then comes Jesus. And they realize that in Jesus... God has finally sent the Messiah, the one who is to come that he would send to save his people. And so they joyfully accept Jesus as the Savior that has come. But then things get difficult. And people start uh, hassling them in various ways because of their faith in Jesus. And so they start to think, you know what? Maybe we'll just go back to doing it the old way. I mean, we could still approach God the old way, right? That was the way that he had given us to approach him anyway. So maybe we'll just do that. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying over and over again, don't do that. You can't do that. And see, here's the thing. If you were to, um, if you were to find out that you had a meeting this Tuesday with the Pope or with the Queen of England, or with the President of the United States, or with some other high-ranking official, you might, if you found that out today, you might get a little panicky and think, okay, I need to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to do. How do I actually approach? What kind of things do I need to do to make sure that I approach them in the right way? You know, there are going to be uh, sort of, a, there's going to be a protocol And you don't want to mess that up in a situation like that. And yet for some reason, for a lot of us, living today, we sort of have this, yeah, but approaching God is not like that. You you just come to him however you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. And it doesn't matter. And it's um, it's almost like we lower him down as though he's somebody that, eh, you can approach him however you want. He doesn't care, whatever you do as though he's not that important. And also as though he has not made known to us how it is that we are to approach him. But, see here's where the people that the author of the Hebrews is writing to kind of understood that when you approach God, there is a way to do that. It is a big deal. And approaching God as humans, there is a major gulf between who we are and who he is, that has to be accounted for. How in the world can we, as sinful human beings, approach a holy and perfect God? Well, good news for for the people of Israel is God had actually given them a way to approach him. him. And it involved all these um, rules and regulations and uh, priests, etc. But what is coming now? As the writer of the Hebrews is saying, that is nothing compared to what we have in Jesus. It's nothing compared to what we have in Jesus. So listen to this, Hebrews chapter 8. It says, now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. 
If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now you may have noticed in there this word covenant that keeps coming back and saying that there is a new covenant and that Jesus' ministry is superior to theirs as the covenant. He's the mediator is superior to that covenant. And if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, it keeps coming back again and again. What covenant is it that it's talking about and what is a covenant anyway? Well, a covenant in just kind of brief terms is a legally binding arrangement between two parties. But here's where it kind of differs from the sort of contracts we're generally used to, which is usually you'll have two parties who come together and sort of haggle over the details, right? Well, I think it should say this. Well, I don't know. I'm not really comfortable with that. How about it says this? And you sort of work it out. And then when you're both happy with it, then okay, let's sign on it. And there we go. That's not how the covenant works when it's between God and his people. He doesn't say, hey, what do you think about this? And we say, ah, I'm all right with most of it, but what about this part over here? How about we change that a little bit? Nope. God says, I have made a covenant with you. Here it is. End of story. Now, if we don't understand who God really is, we might think, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Don't we get a say in this? But if we understand who he is... It makes sense that we don't get a say in it. If he really is the creator of all that exists, if he really is the creator of humanity, if he's the creator of all life itself, no, we don't get a say in how we approach him. No, we don't get a say in what it means for us to be blessed or cursed. No, we don't get a say in what it means to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God or lives that are sinful and turn away from him. This is all what he says. This is how it is. And the covenant, by the way, that it's referring to here is not the covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant he made with Abraham was very unilateral. It was just, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a lot of children. You're going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the people in the world will be blessed. 
Okay. But that's not the one that the Hebrews are talking about. It's talking about the one that came later. The one that came when he says, when he took his people by the hand and led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he took them to Mount Sinai and he said, okay, I have redeemed you from slavery. You are going to be my people. Here's how you live as my people. Here's how you live and here's how you approach me. Here's how you live with me life together. But it was all conditional. The blessings and the curses, remember from Deuteronomy 28 when we read that? It was, if you obey, here's how it's going to go. If you disobey, here's how it's going to go. And there are things that God is teaching his people through that, of what it means, of what good life with God looks like, what it is, what his standards of holiness are. But as it points out in Hebrews, there was a problem with this covenant. Do you know what the problem was? The problem with the covenant was not that God got it wrong on what was holy and what was not holy. It's not that God got it wrong on what was the right way to live and what was the wrong way to live. The problem with the covenant was not the rules that were set up. The problem with the covenant was the people who were supposed to be living by it. Because none of them did. And I think actually the reason why we have a longer list of curses than we have a list of blessings is because that's what people experience more often than the blessings. Because more often than getting it right, we get it wrong. And even when we know what the standard is, and even when we say, okay, that, that's what it is, and so God, we're going to live by that. And, we're gonna, and that's what the people said, by the way, when it was all read out to them. Here's, here's what it is. And they said, yes, we will do all that the Lord has said. But they didn't. And we make you know, New Year's resolutions every year. We make rededications of our lives to God. And we say, this time, I'm going to get it all right. But we don't. Knowing what the standards are doesn't change how we actually live entirely. Now, we'll make some differences here and there, but we don't ever get it all right. And that's the problem with the Old Covenant. And so, by the way, when we're talking about these people who are thinking about, well, we'll just leave Jesus aside, because that's what's causing us problems with our friends and family and neighbors And we'll just go back to approaching God the way we did before. What the author of the Hebrews is pointing out is, yeah, you can do that. But if you do, realize that what you're signing up for are all the curses again. Because that's what the people experienced more than anything else. But, but in Jesus we have not that covenant. We have a new covenant. We have a new covenant and one that is better. And it's better for a lot of reasons, which he goes into here. The ones that were predicted in Jeremiah. This, by the way, uh, is actually the longest continuous quotation of the Old Testament that's anywhere in the New Testament, right here, chapter 8. All coming from the book of Jeremiah. But there's going to be this new covenant. And in fact, it's what we read in Uh, Luke 22, when Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. And he pours uh, the cup and he says, this cup is the 
cup of the new covenant in my blood, right? So the covenant's not going to be like the old covenant. Because, as it says in verse 9, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and so I turned away from them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here are the differences. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the description of the new covenant. And there is one little word that you didn't hear. If. Did you notice that? It's not in there. In the first covenant, it was, if you obey, it's going to go like this. If you disobey, it's going to go like this. Listen again to what the new covenant says. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There's no if. There's no if you obey then you will know me. It's not if you obey then I will be your God. No. And all of this happens because of what it says at the end. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In other words, the problem that the first covenant had is we could not be close to God because of our sinfulness. A sinfulness that had to be taken care of, had to be addressed somehow. And we see through the whole system that was set up that there was a way to approach God. And we'll get into more of this next week through the, um, the sacrifices that are offered, through the priests that are there. But here it says we have Jesus. We have such a high priest is how this began. This is the main point is that we have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? It's not just that we have a high priest. The people of Israel had a high priest. We have such a high priest in that he is the one who is serving in heaven, which means two things for us. One, he is always in the presence of God. The high priests serving in the temple, not always in the presence of God. They would go into the most holy place. They would have to come back out again. They would offer more sacrifices than gifts, and they would go back in, and they would come out again. But Jesus serving in heaven is always in the presence of God. And secondly, it says he's seated at the right hand of God. But the high priests on earth didn't sit down when they were serving because there were always more gifts to offer. There were always more sacrifices that needed to be made. Why is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? Because there's no more sacrifice to be made. He's done it. The sacrifice has been made and all sin has been atoned for. It's been paid. The penalty's been paid, and it's done. And this is why he says we have such a high priest, one that is serving in heaven. This is why the new covenant doesn't start with if. It starts with Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. 
the one who has paid the price for our sin, that we can actually approach God. And as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, if you found out you had a meeting with somebody important, you would prepare to meet them in the way that they had described. So you would not be thrown out, especially if it had been clearly made known what that way is. We have been told what the way is, but it's not through the old covenant of keeping, if I just keep all the Ten Commandments, then if I just do that perfectly, then I can approach God and it'll be all right. Nope. You could try it. Good luck with all that. But the way that he has actually said that we approach God is through Jesus. That's it. That's it. He has already done everything that needed to be done for us to come to God. And so we come through Jesus. If you remember uh, Noah and the ark, you have the whole world drowning, except for the people who are on the ark. Because God had provided a way of salvation. And all they had to do was get on the ark. That's it. You get in the ark, you're fine. You try to paddle around and swim it out yourself, not so fine. God has provided the way of salvation for us, for the world that's drowning in sin. And all that is, is to go to Jesus. That he is the one who is the way of salvation. And when we look at Jesus versus everything else, when we say, like the people of of Hebrews, well, maybe I'll go back to another way of approaching God, another way of relating him, whether that's through uh, the way of Judaism of old, and that first covenant, or whether it's from some other religious system of, well, we can approach God this way or that way or some other way. Know that it all ends up in the same place compared to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the mediator, the go-between, between us and God, the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant that doesn't say if, but a covenant where God says, this is what will be, where we will know him, and know him personally, and know him face-to-face, and know him through Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.